really grateful to be here with you. Honored by Bryn's invitation to, uh, to be here this morning and to share a, a word with you. I'm grateful for what I hear from Bryn about what's happening downtown here through this congregation. And uh, I, I appreciate Bryn and the coffees we've had, hearing his heart, hearing his mind, uh, hearing uh, what's going on in his leadership. Um, and I, I just want to encourage you, you're blessed with Bryn and the leadership here. If you haven't told him that lately, do so. Start the new year off with a word of thanks and gratitude for Bryn. And I, I think the things that you hear him say are worth listening to. Um, it's got a lot of wisdom. Think with me for a minute about how we have each learned to talk. Um, everything that an infant utters is completely out of response to what they hear their parents say. Whether they're strapped in their car seat and they hear their parents talking up front or they're strapped in the grocery store cart or, or they're even in the womb still and, and parents are talking to their newborn, yet-to-be-born child. Everything that a, a, a child utters is coming from an original source language from mom and dad. And, and they begin to put some of these noises together and some of these noises then kind of get formed in, into some sort of a word or two and so we get these sorts of expressions. Mama, sometimes dada comes first. Uh, baba or juice or yes and then our favorite one no <laughs> everything that the child utters is coming first from what they're hearing their parents speak uh, eugene peterson put it this way he said since the beginning of life all speech is answering speech and prayer is kind of like that if if we view that god is the original speaker and everything we say back to him is just in response to what he originally spoke. I mean, any dialogue that we have with God when we pray to him is, is solely an answering speech response back to the one who created us and spoke life into us through a word. And so when we dialogue with him in prayer and we view it as I'm responding to the original speaker, I think it kind of draws us into communion with him a little newer, a fresh way. So our... our uh, unstructured words and phrases, our infant talk to him in prayer, eventually forms into conversation pieces with the king. A gentleman named Snide, uh, Klein Snodgrass puts it this way. He said, prayer is kind of a spiritual breathing. Too often we greet God in the morning or over a meal, and we kind of neglect to talk to him throughout the rest of the day. And specific times of prayer, like when the church gathers, are crucial. But he said, all of life is to be prayed. And Richard Foster adds, there's nothing that seems more right, more like what we are created to be than when we talk with our creator. And I think the Apostle Paul understood that. In Colossians 4, where we're going to go this morning, he, in, he, he issues some words to the church in ancient Colossae about prayer. He is driven to this idea that prayer is a huge part of their existence then, and he wants them to partner with him in prayer. And so if you pick it up in Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He starts this off in verse 2 with sort of a pretty strong command. 
Devote yourselves to prayer. Remain steadfast in prayer. Kind of like the early church, persistent, tenacious, persevering, unceasing in their passion, their devotion to talk to God. What's that devotion look like? Well, maybe one expression of it, if you're a football fan these days, you've seen a lot of fanatics rooting for their team, driving hundreds of miles to cheer their team on with their uniform on and their garb, and their, their devotion to their team is, is evident. Or maybe you've seen it this way. Pretend you're driving around on a Saturday. It's February, March. It's in the 40s outside, 15-mile-an-hour breeze. It's beginning to mist outside. It's, it's pelting on your windshield as you drive past that golf course that you drive by often. And you look out there, and you see these foursomes. And they got their umbrellas open and their, their rain suits on and their stocking caps on and their mittens on and double socks, and they're out there swinging the club. And you kind of say under your breath, what a bunch of idiots. But if you talk to any golfer... They're going, that's how we roll. Like, I'm devoted to that. And Paul is saying something like that. Be steadfast and devoted to prayer like that. Throughout this letter, he seems to be highlighting something about this point. Christ was uniquely positioned on the cross to rescue us out of darkness and to transfer us into the kingdom of the light. So we should pray. And God, the Father, saw it according to his good pleasure that Christ would be the reconciling agent, and so we should pray. Because Paul knew that prayer entered us into a spiritual campaign, that when we pray, we know until Christ returns that Satan will attack and he will not sit back, and prayer is our best offensive weapon. So he says, devote yourselves steadfastly to this discipline of prayer. And Paul knew Satan's tactics all too well. So he alerts the church to two things. One of them is staying alert, on your toes, watchful in prayer, thankful. Another one is praying for others, consistently, continually interceding, praying on behalf of others. And Paul draws up an example from the church. Epaphras is sort of the guy who was apprenticed by Paul to start that church in downtown Colossae. Epaphras, in, later in chapter 4, Paul says he's kind of, sound, kind of like a prayer wrestler, not a pro wrestler but a prayer wrestler he says Epaphras who's one of you a servant of Christ Jesus is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the will of God it's always wrestling Paul uses a term that those Colossian first century citizens would have understood that hand to hand combat kind of the Greco-Roman games competing in the games but not for oneself wrestling on their behalf and Paul can urge them to devote themselves to prayer because of what he says earlier in chapter 1. He says, to this end, I labor. I'm struggling with Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in me and through me. Don't you know how much I'm struggling for you? In other words, Paul is kind of saying, pray for me as I struggle for you. Can I count on you, O church, to do that? Paul knew all too well that when we pray, we become more me-centered rather than we-centered. Mindful of the little boy who was given his bedtime prayers, praying with his mom and his dad, Dear Lord, bless Mommy and bless Daddy and God. Give me a new bicycle! To which his mom says, Oh, son, God's not deaf. You don't need to yell. He'll hear you. To which he said, Oh, Mom, but Grandma's in the room next door and she's a little hard of hearing. 
praying for others, Paul says. Staying alert, praying for others because we're so self-absorbed and he wants them to pray for him as much as for what's going on in their world. Why? That God might open a door for Paul to step through, for the word to be made known, for God to open a door, literally for the door to open for the word. It's not a promise that if they pray on their knees that God will open a door. It's just a, a future expectation, a possibility. So the church might be praying something like this. Oh, Lord, you know our brother Paul. You know his fervor for you, his devotion to you, how he wants to make your name famous. Would you open a door for him? Speak your name. Speak your word. But we trust your wisdom and your timing, God. So is this the right time for the door to be opened? Sometimes God does. Swing it wide open right there. Sometimes he delays. A mentor of mine, when I was going through grad school, my professor said God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. So we pray expectantly for great things to happen. It's ironic. Paul's asking this church to devote themselves to prayer for him that a door might be open. And he's writing this actually from behind prison closed doors. He's been bound because of his proclamation of the gospel message. He knows that if they pray, another type of door might open. He stepped through that sort of door that God opened for him, ended up with a rap sheet and shackled. Paul knew the cost of prayer. Do we understand the cost of praying for a door to open? And the struggle that might be on the other side? What if we prayed knowing that reality for our missionaries? Oh, Lord, we pray for them, that you would open a door for them even this day, this new year, for them to speak a word for you, but knowing the struggle that might be in, in store for them, the imprisonment that might come, or even worse? Pray for our kids. Lord, I want my child to grow up as a proclaimer of you. I pray you give them open doors, knowing, as Paul did, that there might be struggle awaiting on the other side of that open door. We pray differently? We shouldn't. It's to be something that we expect. Know this, though. God is not hamstrung when it looks like his church is in the underdog position. He's not hamstrung. He's not weak. We can pray expecting unimaginable things to happen. Know this, that when we pray, it kind of like it's like grease on the door hinges. Swings it wide open at just the right time for us to step through. But we've we got to be aware it might cost us something. A little sleep, discomfort, loss of status in other people's eyes. We pray and we struggle on this side of the door, knowing that it might be tough on the other side. But that's what Paul's inviting this church to partner with him in. Struggle with me. See, Paul relished opportunities to speak the word of Christ. He says, I'm eager to speak about the mystery of Christ. No, it's not a, a secret mystery. It's, it's a mystery that I understand it through the New Testament of God's unveiled plan to make it known to his church, to his covenant people at just the right time to involve us in on his plan. God's mystery made known. Paul was eager to speak the name. He understood the power of that name. My good friend, Saria Wangrata Namacha. Long name, very short man. He's from Thailand. He's from the Lisu tribe. 
We studied together here in the States at grad school. Stephen has told me, amongst the Lisu, if you know your geography about that part of the world, between Thailand and Laos, there's the Mekong River that goes straight up north into southern China. And he said, in that southern part of China, there are 200,000 Lisu people. And only about 6,000 of them are Christians. He's gone up there several times to encourage the believers, but also to make inroads into the civic leaders and the political leaders And he says, it's amazing, Derek, when I utter Jesus to them, when I speak Jesus, they do the little puppy dog thing. They look at me with this, they have no context for that name. They're naive and they're innocent and their intrigue is so exciting, but that's so foreign for us to think about today. I mean, people know Jesus Christ this and Jesus Christ that as though they're best friends with Jesus. Everybody's a friend of Jesus these days, it seems like. Paul was eager to make Jesus known, to really pull back the curtains on who he really is, for people to know him, to see him face to face, to get to understand who he is. And intercessory prayer on his part was the key. Paul longed for this church to pray on Paul's behalf, for a door to be opened up, for Paul to step through, and for the word of Jesus to be proclaimed. He expected this church to partner with him. And my question is, I wonder what that opportunity is for you and for me, what we expect. I wonder if you've ever considered the front door of your home might be the door that God wants to open up for you to proclaim Jesus through. I'm going to guess in this room, we've moved a couple of times in here. What if... You viewed that rental property or that house or that place that you've purchased as though God was the realtor for you getting that location. What if we understood it that way, that God was the one who actually directed you and me into that neighborhood, that he was the one who placed us there and ordained us to step through a door, literally, to connect with our neighbors there through prayer? I think we'd live differently. I think we would expect things differently. I think we would do things differently where we live if that's where God or that he wanted us to be around those people at this time on that block for that mission field. My wife and I have been in Boise now for about four years. We've rented a couple houses, and now just in May we purchased a house. We've just spent a short brief of time in each of these neighborhoods just beginning to scratch the surface with our neighbors. Before coming here, as Bryn said, we lived in the Denver area. We moved there in December, and Jeff and Joan were the first ones to meet us. It snowed heavy the first weekend we were there. Joan brought us this chocolate cake, and Jeff was the head of the HOA, both Christians at the multi-site of the church that I was on staff at. Good to meet them. Right next door, Dave and Cindy. Dave was a police sergeant in the local police force, and Cindy was a CSI agent. Figured if anything went wrong with our family, then they'd figure it out. Actually, because of their profession, they were pretty guarded protecting their kids until they got to know who we were. And before long, Dave was helping me blow out my sprinkler system in the, in the fall and turn it back on in the spring. Multiple backyard fence conversations with Dave. He's a really good guy. Shared with me about his daughter who was really ill. and He was making multiple trips downtown Denver to the hospital to take care of her. He actually quit his job because he was so concerned about his daughter and wanted to be with her. Just prayed with them. We had a lot of things connecting, a budding friendship between my wife and, and me and, and Dave and Cindy. And then they bought a house and they moved away. <laughs> There's another neighbor. We observed they were very meticulous and articulate. Their lawn was manicured perfectly. They had a teenage boy about the age of our daughter. 
um, we saw them shooting baskets one time out about, it was about March or February in the driveway. We put our leash around a little Jack Russell dog who's a friendly little guy, and we went across the street, and he did his work. They loved dogs, and he was a lovable little thing, and we learned their names, Rick and Lori, and, and uh, their son's name, uh, Kurt. Rick, he was a policeman in, in another police force in the Denver area, pretty safe neighborhood to live in. Uh, Lori, she was a nurse for terminally ill people. That was the first of multiple conversations that we had with them. A few months later in May, we had a garage sale in the neighborhood, and we went to the driveway and hung out with them for a while. That was the start of multiple sidewalk conversations, whether we were shoveling snow in the wintertime or watching tornadic clouds come through. This was a great opportunity to connect with Rick and Lori, and I'm convinced those talks were born out of months of prayer prior to moving to Denver. Months of bathing. God, what neighborhood do you want us to live in? What house do you want us to buy? What neighbors do you want us to befriend? And we were determined to obey him at that opportunity with those people at that time when we pray. We invite God in to be the creator of conversations yet to be. And when we pray, it becomes the prerequisite that enables us to be dispensers of his grace. You hear me? Our conversations with the God of grace will lead to conversations this way, with grace. And Paul picks it up. Because of that, we must, in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the most, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Following up his first command, devote yourselves to pray. Be steadfast in prayer. A second command, walk with wisdom around outsiders. As you live your day with outsiders, do it deliberately, but be wise about it, properly, decently, respectably. Don't insulate yourself as though you're going to catch something from those outsiders and not in a relationship with God. Be close with them. How do we do that? Paul says, by making the most of every opportunity. Every opportunity, seizing that. It's a continual action phrase here. Redeeming the time. Have you heard that phrase before? This is the verse. Continually buying the season that I might take advantage of that opportunity. I determined this neighborhood was going to be different. Though I'd been a pastor for about 20 years at various churches, this neighborhood was going to be different for me. I don't think I was always very obedient sometimes with the prompting of the Spirit to get outside my front door and cross the street. I kind of did it, but I was so concerned about my time for my family and myself and my church that I'm not sure I was a very good neighbor. And this time with Rick, it was going to be different. So every time I saw Rick out the back patio walking the dogs, slide it open, hey, Rick, just to get a reaction. Going to the mailbox, hey, Rick. And you know what? He was a great guy. Hey, Derek. And that's sort of a safe uh, connection with each other grew to the point of feeling comfortable with each other. I mean, he found out I was a pastor at a church and a Christian and didn't freak out. I mean, he, he had every tool you'd ever dream of in his garage. He'd let me borrow those gladly. He'd get really comfortable with me, even to the point of sharing about his marriage with Lori. He had strained things there. No, 
nothing immoral happened, but he was so busy finishing his bachelor's degree while being a dad and while, while being a career cop. And he was running their only child at this sporting event and coaching him there and, and busy with work and school and lawyer all the while in the back going, hey, hey, Rick, do I matter? He'd withdrawn too much from that savings account of love with his wife and it had depleted and he was trying to make deposits back into that not very successful and it was just going slow I had no right to really probe into that I just listened and told him Nell and I would pray what difference does your Christian existence where you live make the distinguishing mark oftentimes is this synthesis between our behavior and our speech So Paul says, let your speech always be with grace. Let your speech be with grace. How is that possible? My professor mentor, Dr. Robert Lowry, said, effective prayer is not measured by how much we get out of God, but how much he gets into us. Prayer allows God to temper who we are Guaranteed, when your day is littered with conversations with God of grace, you'll be more innately prone to have conversations with grace. This way, speak with grace. And then Paul says, as though seasoned with salt. It was a first century idiom. Those, those Colossian believers would have picked up on that quickly. Maybe some of you have acquaintances with people who, who are salting their speech, profanities flying left and right. That's not what Paul's talking about here. An idiom seasoned with salt means be witty, being clever, humorous. My good friend Troy, when we lived in Texas, Troy was an elder at the church we were part of, strong Christian guy, loved that brother. He had a neighbor named Bill. Bill was the guy that his company would fly across the country in parts outside of the U.S. He was a great presenter for the product they sold, an eloquent communicator, Bill was a a reasoned skeptic against Christian faith. But Bill liked golf. Troy and I and Bill triangulated this friendship of going golfing. And it was not uncommon by the time we got to the first tee that Bill had downed a few beers by the time we got there. And he was was having a lot of fun. One time we rounded the front nine and went to the tenth tee and he was... He was having a lot of fun by that time. He had drunk quite a bit. And I hit this mammoth drive on this par five, beautiful, right down the middle of the fairway. And he got down there and hit this fairway metal to the green about 10 feet from the hole and sunk it for eagle. Back in the fairway, though, Bill's behind me. As I hit this beautiful shot heading to the green, it's going to land 10 feet. And Bill's behind me. And Bill, with a bottle in his hand, in his southern Texas draw, said, Oh, my Lord. To which at that very quick moment, I turned around and said to him, no, no, Bill, I'm just Derek. He thought that was pretty clever. He thought that was pretty funny. But guess what? That opened up an opportunity for us to have a little more bond. Still hesitant about this Christian deal, but he asked me a couple times to speak into his life. We speak with grace as so seasoned with salt so you know how to respond to each person. Not waiting, or not budging in too quickly, but letting them speak, and then you answer with grace. I want to highlight something for you in this text. There's a movement from the plural to the singular, which I think is very important for us. Behave wisely toward the outsiders, plural, all. But to each person, speak. Speak with grace to each person. 
Makes me think of Matthew 25, that parable that Jesus issues about the sheep and the goats being separated. Do you recall that? The sheep and the goats and the sheep, those who have followed him, say to him, Lord, when did we feed you and give you drink and clothe you and visit you with you when you were sick? And when did we visit you when you were in prison? Well, sometimes we misread what Jesus says. Jesus did not say, when you did it to all the least of these, you did it to me. He did not say, when you did it to the masses of the least of them, you did it to me. That's a numbing number. That's a large number. That's paralyzing. This is what he says. Look at it. Check it out. He says, when you did it to one, the least of these. When you did it to one, the least of these. I want to encourage you to find your one where you live. Find your one. I think that we will live differently if you love your neighbor, singular, as yourself, singular, after loving the Lord your God, singular. Loving my neighbor involves loving God, which precedes the third greatest commandment of of making disciples of all nations. How do we succeed in making disciples? How do we measure our success? Well, by loving God and loving our neighbor. Maybe that's the key. The second one might be the key. And loving your neighbor might be the key to see how you're doing making disciples. If you think of the, the story of the Good Samaritan, he's the one, the good neighbor is the one who stopped and noticed and took time to get into the mess of just one. Consider being a true neighbor where you live. In Arvada, Colorado, 2010, it's a suburb of Denver. The area pastors across denominational lines got together and they made an appointment to meet with the city council men and women of Arvada. They wanted to offer their help because there was an issue the city council was trying to struggle with. How do we deal with the gang issue and the school dropout rate and just the broken family of our area? And the pastors wanted to team up with them, and the councilmen and women invited them and welcomed and loved your ideas to come and partner with us. And the pastor says, well, what can we do to help you? And that council group said, you know, if you could go back to your churches and you could ask your folks to just be a better neighbor, we think all these things will get resolved. And those pastors kind of tucked their tail and bowed their head. They were a little ashamed. They walked out of that council meeting because it took a group of non-Christians to remind them of the second greatest commandment. Regarding your neighborhood, any outsiders there? Those that aren't yet in relationship with Jesus, anyone near you? Do you know their names? Do you know their hobbies? Do you know their occupations besides the van that sits out front that says Bob's Roto-Rooter? Do you know their favorite sports teams? Do you know their political persuasion? Do you know the names of their kids? What school their kids go to? Do you you know the names of their pets? Do Do you know your neighbors? Have you met them? Some of you are going, uh, yeah, Derek, thanks for ripping that scab off. Trying to avoid them like the plague, thank you very much. I mean, how in the world am I supposed to be, have a conversation with grace, with neighbors, when he smokes like a chimney, or, or he uses such profanity as a little kid, to his little kids, or, or he's in a same-sex relationship. How in the world am I supposed to embrace, like Jesus would, someone Someone who lets their dog bark all night long. And every fall, they let their their leaves clog up against my fence. And every spring, they let their dandelion seeds float over into my yard. How am I supposed to love my neighbor when they're rooting for the Oregon ducks? 
I mean, I'm not sure I even want to befriend those sorts of people. We wouldn't say it, but there are some neighbors that we probably wouldn't feel very comfortable if they ended up showing up here. I get that. But think with me for a minute. That neighbor that some neighbors probably won't darken the door to this room. So how in the world is God going to use you to make an impact into their life? What's he going to do? Being a good neighbor is better than any church growth initiative or any plan you could ever come up with. It means, like Jesus, when the word put on flesh, as we sung at Christmas time, the word put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, that we incarnate Jesus, that we enflesh Jesus to the people right around us. It means being the church away from this building. And I want to encourage you to keep going with that. You guys are well on your way. Just continue. And the way to begin might be this way. In your bulletin, there's a white sheet, and on the back, there's a house. I put on the screen here uh, a picture of my neighborhood where you do the Google Maps 5,000-foot level view, and you draw the roads around your house or around your dorm or around your apartment complex. You put boxes around for the names of the people right around you, and you begin filling it in with their names of the, the, the people that live there, the children that live there, the pets that would live there, that where they work, things you know that you can be praying for them about. You stick it in the magnet on the fridge or in the shower in a plastic bag where you can pray for them often, and then when you see them go to the mailbox, or when you walk back in from them with them after shoveling the yard, shoveling the, the sidewalk or raking leaves in the yard, whatever, when you see them, hey, fill in the blank because you know their name because you fill in your little sheet. <laughs> and begin making some conversation over and over and over and over and months of intentional intersections with those people will allow you the opportunity that God already knows about what's going on in their world and how you can pray for them, how you can befriend them. Now, notice this. You haven't tried to win them to the Lord. You're just being a neighbor, just a friend. It'll create multiple opportunities of backyard fence conversations or or carport conversations or something in the lobby with them. And here's a basic step, four steps, a schematic that might help you in just being a better neighbor. It's come up with a friend of mine from Denver named Brian Mavis. Pray, play, stay, and say is a schematic that's memorable, helpful. Pray, play, stay, and say. And on your bulletin, if you want to take a few notes or in your phone, here's a few things you might think about. The first one is pray for your neighbor by name. Get that sheet, fill it out, try it. Pray for them by name. Devote yourself steadfastly to prayer for them. And here's the value statement that goes along with why praying for them by name is so important talking to God about your neighbor before talking to your neighbor about God. Talk to your neighbor, talk to God about your neighbor by name before talking to your neighbor about God. Otherwise, we barge in way before God can can set the the the, the playing field and, and create the opportunity. It becomes more natural and more successful evangelism happens just by by befriending them. And, and prayer becomes a key for that. Prayer and then play. Create some memories with them. Have them over for a barbecue. Have some board game nights. Watch a movie. Do a double date. Go biking, hiking, golfing. Do something to create an Instagram moment with them where you find out what they're good at. 
Where you can, you can find out what their hobbies are and you can compliment them. I mean, their wheels are always immaculate. Compliment them. If they have great attire all the time, compliment them on it. If they do something with web design and you know it, then compliment them and figure out some way to partner with them. Find some ways to intersect your hobbies with theirs and play with them. Make a memory with them. Pray, play, and then stay as you get to know them. And they get to reveal a part of their life. Don't grow uncomfortable with them and flee. <laughs> stay there. Learn. Listen. I mean, they got stuff. They're not an assignment. They're not a project. They got stuff just like you do. Stay with them. And here's the value statement. Catch this one. Love them because you are a Christian, not just because you want them to become one. Love them because you are a Christian, not just because you want them to become one. Of course, we want them to spend eternity with us in heaven. But they might not be responsive to you very well off, right off the bat. So don't write them off. Stay there with them. Discover ways to serve them. And in serving them, it greases the, the hinges of the door, and you couple it with prayer, and God turns the handle on the door, and it opens up to the fourth step of say. Pray, play, stay. Finally, say something. Share your story with them. This is where you get to tell what's going on in your life and how through the cracks and the mess and the consequences of your day and the choices you've made, God's applied grace to your life and you begin to help them to see, here's the value, sharing your story, eventually how your story and God's story meet and you find purpose in his story. Look for their eyes to give you hints. Listen for them to ask questions. And when they ask questions, kick the door off the hinges and step through and tell them an answer. Be prepared to give a response for the hope that you have. Prayerful conversations with grace, they lead to neighborly conversations with grace. One day I saw Rick. I think he'd just gotten his mail, and I happened to go by the door, and I peeked my head out. Hey, Rick. And I could tell by his eyes he wanted to talk, so I went outside the sidewalk, and we talked for a while. He began telling me about him reading this, this book called The Love Dare Book. It came out through a movie, a Christian movie a few years ago, The Love Dare, 40-Day Dare of Strengthening Your Marriage and Your Part. He says, man, I'm on day 23, and God's working on me big time. And I think Lori's beginning to see something in me. Still respectful of her distrust, he was beginning to gain some hope. I think I'm becoming her man again. The whole church deal, they're figuring that out. But their marriage... It was stronger than ever. You know, on the day that I pulled away from Thistle Ridge Avenue in Firestone, Colorado, to come teach at Boise Bible College here, underneath the windshield wiper of the U-Haul truck was this envelope. It was a letter from Rick, and it read, Derek, where would my life be if it weren't for you and Nell? God bless you because he used you to salvage my life and family. You've been the best neighbors. We hate to see you go but may God go with you. If you were to move out of your neighborhood, how many tears of sadness would there be from your neighbors? Anyone notice? Anyone care? How many would say, man, you guys have been the best neighbors. What are you moving away for? Suffice it to say, you've been uniquely positioned where you live in your neighborhood and it all depends on conversations with grace. Let's pray, all right?
Lord Jesus, we want to obey you to the end of the world. Where we live, where we lie our head, we want to seize that opportune spot as our mission field right here, right now, that we would be the best neighbors and representatives of you as possible, that you would open up a door for us to share the word of Jesus in a fresh way, in a relevant way, that would make sense. Would you work through us and work through this church? Pray that Boise would be turned upside down because of this church's impact one person at a time. For your glory, that's our prayer. Amen.